0: Is it right for a Christian to hope that somebody gets what they deserve? Or does forgiveness mean that you're free of the consequences of your sinful actions? In other words, are forgiveness and justice mutually exclusive? The Bible says no. Christians can and must forgive and at the same time be committed to the pursuit of justice. Forgiveness flows from God's justice and, his love. and the cross is the place where God's justice and his love meet. At the cross, God condemns sin in the flesh. He executes his righteous punishment against sin. There's God's justice. And at the same time, at the cross, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He takes the punishment we deserve upon himself. That's God's love. So, God's justice, God's love are not mutually exclusive. And we can't elevate one attribute of God above the others. And the reason we can't do that is historically, theologians have said that God is simple. And that one always confused me. It's like, what do you mean God is simple? He doesn't sound simple. Well, this just means God is not composed of parts, He is unified. So, in other words, God is not like some transformer where his attributes are floating around and then they come together to form the super, super God. God is all of his attributes all of the time. So, you can't prioritize God's grace apart from God's truth. God's attributes are never set in opposition to each other. God's mercy is not opposed to his justice, God's love is not opposed to his wrath. So therefore, God's justice, God's forgiveness are not mutually exclusive. When God forgives us, he removes the penalty of our sin. And when we forgive others, we extend forgiveness to them. We surrender our right to seek personal vengeance. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, human vengeance can go astray because of our sinful nature, but God's vengeance is governed and controlled by His goodness and His justice. So, God's vengeance is never unchecked, it's never out of control. When we forgive, we release ourselves from the pursuit of personal vengeance, and then we trust in God's goodness and we trust in God's justice. And sometimes that justice will be meted out on earth through human government and judicial systems. And if not now on earth, then we hope for the return of Christ when he returns to set things right. He returns to judge the earth. So God's justice, God's love, God's forgiveness are at the heart of the gospel. This morning, we're going to take a break from the book of James and spend time in the book of Philemon, And this is Paul's shortest letter, but it's power-packed. And as we reflect on forgiveness, Philemon really is a great book to sit with. And as we'll see, there are two main points to the letter of Philemon, and there are two main points to my sermon. The first is that there is power in the gospel to transform relationships. And the second naturally flows from this, And it's that reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ, reconciliation and unity in the church was of paramount importance for Paul. This is a top priority. So let me read Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved "'Fellow Worker, and Aphia, our Sister, "'and Archippus, our Fellow Soldier, "'and the Church in your house. "'Grace to you and peace from God our Father "'and the Lord Jesus Christ. "'I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, "'because I hear of your love and of the faith "'that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. "'And I pray that the sharing of your faith "'may become effective for the full knowledge "'of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ.'" Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, the book of Philemon is one of Paul's most unique letters because it's addressed to an individual. And of course, he mentions Aphia and Archippus and the church that meets in Philemon's house. Nevertheless, the bulk of the letter is directly addressed to Philemon. And the issue at hand is the slave master relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul wrote this letter at the same time he wrote Colossians, likely when he was imprisoned in Ephesus. And the same cluster of people are mentioned in both letters. And the distance between Ephesus and Colossae is about the same as Wichita and Topeka. It's about 120 miles. And here's what we know from the text. What we know is that Onesimus was a slave. Verse 16, Paul urges Philemon to receive him back no longer as a slave or bondservant, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Now, what we don't know are the circumstances that led to Onesimus' run-in with Paul. There are various theories as to how this happened. One of the most plausible is perhaps that Onesimus was a runaway slave, a fugitive slave. Onesimus and Philemon had some sort of disagreement. Onesimus had heard about this Paul guy through the church that met in his house And he thought, you know, this Paul guy sounds like a good guy. Maybe he can resolve our dispute. So Onesimus runs seeking help from Paul. And as I said, the distance, Wichita, Topeka, Ephesus, Colossae, it's not that far. So it's plausible. And while visiting with Paul in prison, Onesimus becomes a Christian. Paul leads him to Christ. Verse 10, Paul calls him my child whose father I became in my imprisonment. So this is using my sanctified imagination, but I wonder what Paul's gospel message to Onesimus was like. What sort of gospel presentation was that? Maybe it was something like this, Onesimus, you're a slave. Let me tell you about God's love for his people who were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them from slavery out of Egypt And the same God who delivered the people of Israel has now revealed himself in Christ, who has come to set at liberty those who are slaves to the power of sin and death. And in Christ, you are now included in God's family. You're given a new identity. And you're more than a slave. You're a son, a beloved brother. In any case, Paul intends to send Onesimus back to Philemon in order that Philemon and Onesimus would be reconciled. And if they're reconciled, Paul says, my heart will be refreshed in Christ. That's really the heart of Paul's ask, is that his heart would be refreshed through their reconciliation. And it seems to me that Paul suggests Philemon ought to grant Onesimus' freedom so that he could be returned to help Paul in gospel ministry. So in verse 21, Paul says, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And maybe that's a signal that Paul wants Philemon to give Onesimus' freedom. Now, Paul doesn't come right out and say, free Onesimus. He's more indirect. He's more subtle. And modern readers have a problem with this. But however strange that sounds to our modern ears, more important than Onesimus' freedom was reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ. What mattered for Paul more than anything else was seeing the transformative power of the gospel applied in relationships. Now this is really challenging. This doesn't compute in our cultural context, and that's because of our close association with race-based chattel slavery in American history. So let me state unequivocally, slavery is evil. It is a heinous sin, a gross offense against people made in God's image. And this is a pervasive issue worldwide today. There are millions of people in modern forms of slavery, sex trafficking, forced labor, child labor. So the challenge for us is, that we want to understand the Bible rightly, and so it's important for us to understand the world in which it was written. And so we have to be very careful in not letting our modern uh, assumptions overshadow the cultural context of the Bible. Slavery in the New Testament era was very different than slavery in the American South. And I say that not to justify slavery in the New Testament era or to say that slavery in the New Testament period was not that bad. That's not what I'm saying. But it is important for us to contrast these two forms of slavery to help us better understand the world that Paul lived in. So slavery in the New Testament era was widespread. There are estimates that about a third of the population were considered slaves. Scholars think that sometimes economic conditions for somebody in slavery were better than somebody who obtained their freedom. Slavery was often voluntary in this society, so somebody would willingly and voluntarily enter into slavery to pay off a debt, so it was a form of indentured servitude. Think of a more like an employer-employee relationship. Ancient slavery was not ethnic-based, like American slavery, and then freedom was the norm in ancient slavery. Often slaves worked to obtain their freedom. That was not possible in American forms of slavery. Other historians note that even though both these forms of slavery are different, in both forms of slavery, slaves were vulnerable to abuse and exploitation. So it is true that they're different, but I think it's wrong-headed to say that slavery in the New Testament period was not that bad. So if that's the case, then it seems like we're left with a problem, because why doesn't the Bible just explicitly condemn slavery? Why doesn't Paul just come right out and say this if he thinks it's wrong? And there are several ways we can answer this. I'm grateful to Thomas Kidd, he's a Christian historian, who's written on this. And just summarizing what he's written, he says, First, Christians, uh, they were a new religious movement in the first century. They didn't have political power or influence. Uh, There was no way to change this institution. There was no Christian culture. Second, Paul actually does explicitly condemn enslavers, So 1 Timothy 1.10, that word enslavers can be taken to mean slave traders, those who were involved in the buying and selling of slaves. Paul explicitly condemns enslavers. And then finally, while the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, it does plant the seeds that eventually lead to the abolition of slavery. So it's without question that the roots of the abolitionist movement were Christian. Over time, Christian reasoning, Christian reflection on the Bible works out the implication of the doctrine of the image of God, that all people have equal dignity and value. Now sadly there were Christians who opposed this and wrongly held to pro-slavery opinions, but the Christian origins of the abolition of slavery can be traced all the way back through the first few centuries of the church, all the way back To Philemon with Paul. Beginning with Paul and Philemon, we see that the church cared for slaves, they shared the gospel with them, they treated them as brothers and sisters in Christ, they treated them as equals. So, yes, Paul doesn't explicitly call for Onesimus' freedom. In many ways, I think what Paul does is much more radical. He's talking about the way the gospel transforms his social status. And he calls for reconciliation and unity in the church. So let's look more closely at the letter. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, This is why, in God's providence, maybe this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. The gospel has transformed their relationship. And now, as brothers in Christ, they are to be reconciled in whatever ways they had wronged each other. Paul speaks of slavery in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So Onesimus was a slave when he became a Christian. Now he is to regard himself as a free man in Christ. Paul was a free man. He was a Roman citizen. But now he is to regard himself as a slave of Christ. And so when it comes to salvation for Paul, what matters is not slave or free or social status or position. What matters is unity in Christ. Now Paul is Onesimus's spiritual father in the Lord, Onesimus is now considered a beloved brother, and in Colossians, Paul is clear that he wants the whole church to get on board. He wants the whole church to understand and welcome Onesimus in love. So, in Colossians 4:9, he calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So he's emphasizing that they are to welcome him as a brother in Christ no longer as a slave, but a beloved brother. And Paul says, he says, I could command you what to do. I have command authority. Uh, But he actually wants Philemon to do what's right according to his own free will. So verses eight and nine, Paul says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And then he says, I... Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ. So, Paul could have appealed to his apostolic authority. That's what he means when he calls himself an old man. It's not a literal old man, but the word actually refers to his authority as an apostle. And it can sound somewhat strange to us in verse 11 when Paul says that formerly Onesimus was useless, but now he is useful. That shouldn't be taken to be a statement about Onesimus's dignity or value as a human being. He's not saying he's useless in that sense. Uh, This is in reference to Onesimus being fit for gospel ministry. So before Onesimus was a Christian, he would have been useless for gospel ministry. How are you going to share the gospel if you don't know the gospel? But now he is useful. He can be used by the Lord for his service. In verse 12, Paul demonstrates his love. He says, I am sending Onesimus, Onesimus back as if I was sending my very heart. And the word that Paul uses there is the same word for guts. So Paul is full of gutsy compassion for Onesimus. And he says, I would have been glad to have Onesimus stay with me, but again, I want you to do this of your own free will, not by compulsion. So verses 17 through 19, Paul says, if Philemon, if you consider yourself a gospel partner with me, then you need to receive Onesimus as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, then charge it to my account. And I will make this right. So, in other words, as you would forgive me, forgive him, and I will make things right. There's forgiveness, and there's justice, there's restitution. And he calls for them to be reconciled. And that reconciliation, that unity in the body of Christ, would refresh Paul's heart. Verse 20. So, I think it's clear that the main point of the book of Philemon is the power of the gospel to transform relationships. And one natural application of this is forgiveness. Reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ was of chief importance for Paul. So, let's think about some various applications of forgiveness in our lives. First, forgiveness begins with God. This is vertical. God has offered us forgiveness from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ and the sacrifice on the cross, we have reconciliation with God. We are washed, we are cleansed from our sin through the blood of Christ. We must never get bored with this reality, this promise that there is power in the blood of Christ to cleanse us, to forgive us, to give us eternal life. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this forgiveness with God, this vertical forgiveness, is primary. It's of first importance in your life. And if you've never trusted Christ with your life, the Bible says you're spiritually dead. You're enslaved to the power of sin. But you can be free today. You you don't Do anything to save yourself, it's through faith. It's through faith in Christ's all-sufficient work on the cross for you that you that you are saved from the enslaving power of sin. And if you're a Christian, perhaps you need to be reminded and encouraged of Christ's forgiveness for you. God's steadfast love endures forever, Malachi 3, 6 and 7 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Return to me, and I will restore you. So the fact that God does not change is the ground for our hope of repentance. We can repent because we know that God does not change. When we sin, which we all do and will, we know God remains the same. He is steadfast, he is faithful, his steadfast love endures forever. He will extend grace and forgiveness to us in Christ. The second application of forgiveness is that God's forgiveness is the ground of extending forgiveness to others. So this is horizontal Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. So because we have been forgiven, we must forgive. And a failure to forgive others is a failure to understand the depths of God's love shown to us. And I don't pretend to say that this is easy. This is not easy. Forgiveness is not inconsistent with justice. Forgiveness takes time. It doesn't mean trust is immediately restored. And you might think about what about irreparable fractured relationships? Sometimes restored relationship is not appropriate or possible. Sometimes forgiveness is one-sided. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes your extension of forgiveness won't be accepted, but that's okay. Remember what's in your control. But if you don't forgive and instead harbor bitterness resentment, anger in your heart, you will be consumed. Forgiveness is something that we need to do for our own healing. And I think it's healing when we forgive because it's the grace of God at work in our own heart, in our own lives. One of the heart attitudes at River is to maintain clear relationships. So our assumption is that we're going to offend each other. It's gonna happen, but our commitment to each other is to maintain clear relationships by asking forgiveness and seeking reconciliation when we sin against each other. We need to be reconciled to each other because when the church gathers to worship, we worship the God who has reconciled us. In a few minutes, we're gonna celebrate communion Together, And communion is an expression of this unity and reconciliation with God and unity and reconciliation with each other as a body of Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll continue together in worship. Spend some time reflecting on God's grace, God's mercy shown to you. Ask him to reveal any sin. Confess your sin to him and thank God for forgiveness. And maybe you need to be reconciled to another brother or sister in Christ. Resolve in your heart to make things right so far as this depends on you.